When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And thank you to, to all those who've got up and led while well, we're short on numbers. It's great to have other people stepping in. So what a great job Peter's done. So thank you, Peter and Felix and Ebony for, uh, for uh, their prayers and reading there. So uh, that's brilliant. Just let me get organised here. I'll introduce myself in a minute. But just let me pray first before, um, as we uh, lead into bringing the word this morning. So bow your heads. Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you that you give us a new heart and a new spirit. And we pray to hear from you this morning as we open the scripture. We pray that it moves our hearts to rejoice in you more fully, to follow you more willingly and to serve you more faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Introduce myself. So I'm Rob, and for the last week I have been an elder here at <laughs> High Wycombe Church. And I'm married to Kath, and for the last week she has been an elder's wife here at, <laughs> at High Wycombe Church, amongst other things that she is, as you saw this morning when, when she got up. Um, now, that segues into me telling you a story that Kath told me, a true story about something that happened this week. It's about a Bible fellowship group member whom I will call our friend as I tell you this story. Our friend was doing her heart work at home, contemplating the passage about the Samaritan woman at the well. And in this passage, Jesus is weary and she asks the woman for water. And a conversation ensues, ensues between Jesus and the woman. And by the end of the passage, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Now, as our friend was working her way through the passage, someone knocked on the door. A young lady, about 19 or 20 years old, she was selling foxtail packages. It was a hot day and the woman said that she was thirsty. Could she have a glass of water? Well, our friend invited her in, sat her down, gave her a glass and started telling her about the coincidence that she was just reading a passage about Jesus asking for water. So she explained the whole passage and asked the young lady if she would like to receive the Lord as her saviour. 
And the woman replied, well, my family is Christian, and yes, I would like to receive Jesus as my saviour. So our friend led her through the sinner's prayer. This story makes me marvel. I marvel at God's timing in orchestrating the whole event, with the woman arriving on a hot day, right when our friend was reading that particular passage. I marvel at the fact that the young lady was at the point in her life in which she was ready to forsake her old life and take on new life in Christ. So that's something that makes me marvel. What about Jesus? What makes Jesus marvel? And that's the title of today's message. What makes Jesus marvel? There are only two things recorded in Scripture about which Jesus marvelled. One is negative. It's in Mark 6, so we would have looked at it within the last year. He marvelled at the lack of faith among the people in the town where he grew up, in Nazareth. So what was the one good thing that made him marvel? Can someone call out loud any ideas as to what the good thing was that made him marvel? Faith in the centurion. Somebody was listening to Ebony as she was giving the, uh, the reading. So thank you, Jen. That's right. The faith of the centurion in today's passage made Jesus marvel. It's surprising that Jesus marveled at anything. Why would Jesus marvel? marvel? He, uh, why would he be amazed at something unexpected? He was God. He was able to know all things. When he met the woman at the well in John's Gospel, he knew without being told that she had, had, that she had, had five husbands and that the man she was currently with was not her husband. He knew people's thoughts and what was in their heart. But he also, as a man, entered into the emotion of situations. Like when Lazarus died, he knew he was about to raise him from death, but nevertheless, he wept. And likewise, in this uh, episode that we're looking at today, Jesus entered into the emotion of the situation. Something remarkable happened, and he was amazed. Well, what was so remarkable about the centurion whom Jesus met? Let's look at the passage and find out. So you might still have it open before you, um, but if not, then open up your Bibles and have a look at Matthew 8. I'll give you some context for the passage while you're looking that up. Matthew has written an account of Jesus' earthly uh, life, primarily aimed at Jews, The um, Matthew's account, primarily aimed at Jews. And he was showing them that Jesus was the Messiah, the God-anointed king that they were waiting for. Jesus attracted crowds wherever he went. In chapters 5 to 7, Jesus had just been addressing a large crowd. It's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, and he was telling them about the kingdom of heaven and how to live in it. Now, in chapter 8, Jesus demonstrates the power of the kingdom with various healings, and we're going to look more deeply at the second of those healings in verse 5. We'll look at it in two parts. And remember, this whole incident, it's of particular significance. It caused Jesus to marvel. The first section is verses 5 to 10. It was the centurion's faith that made Jesus marvel. And Jesus then uses this example of unsurpassed faith 
as a springboard for the second section in verses five, uh, 11 to 13. The kingdom of heaven is by faith, not by birthright. So we'll start at verse 5. We see here that Jesus had returned from the mountain where he'd given his sermon. He healed a leper along the way and he arrived in the town of Capernaum where he lived during his ministry in Galilee. He was approached by a centurion. Now the centurion, unlike Jesus, was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. He represented a Roman military presence, keeping the peace in the region. He was high-ranking among the military, being in charge of over 100 soldiers and having servants to serve him. So he was an important person in his own culture. And the centurion, he was in a pickle in verse 6 because he had a servant who was paralysed and suffering terribly. Servants in this age, they were sometimes uh, often expendable, but not this one. He was highly valued by the centurion. So the centurion wanted to do whatever he could for him. And so he had come to Jesus. We see that Jesus, at the end of chapter 4, uh, he had been going throughout Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And evidently, the centurion had either seen or heard about Jesus, and so he came. And what was Jesus' response? Well, have a look at verse 7, but, but let me point out it's ambiguous in the original Greek. So the ESV translates it one way, which is uh, what Ebony read out to us, and the NIV translates it another. The ESV says, I will come and heal him, as if Jesus is saying, I'm full of compassion, so I'll come. But the NIV says, shall I come and heal him? Or or more like, shall I come and heal him? As if Jesus is saying, I'm a Jew and you're a Gentile. Am I the one to come and heal him? Now I'm siding with the NIV as being both the more likely meaning of the original Greek and better fitting the context of the passage. uh, This reading of it also concurs with Jesus' response when he meets a Gentile woman further on in chapter 15. And he says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus says, shall I come and heal him? What the centurion says next is what causes Jesus to be amazed. As we see uh, in verse 10, Matthew reports on Jesus being amazed. Jesus will respond to what the centurion says by saying, nowhere in Israel have I found such faith. Now, Jesus had already witnessed great faith from an Israelite, just back in verse 2, when a leper came to him and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So what was it that the centurion said that showed that his faith was, in fact, unsurpassed? Jesus, in effect, had discouraged the centurion from engaging with him. Jesus, you see, Jesus is in the process of gradually revealing his messianic magnificence. He's at a stage in his ministry here when he is telling people that he is healed, see that no one knows about it. 
So that's what he says in chapter 9 to two blind men that he healed their blindness. Now the centurion, he's not put off by Jesus' discouraging response. But rather, in verse 8 and 9, he ploughs ahead with his appeal to Jesus. He begins in verse 8. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. The centurion, a person looked up to in his own culture, rightly recognises his standing before Jesus. He shows respect for Jesus, calling him Lord. In effect, he is saying, in my own estimation, you outrank me. You are right in conveying that it's utterly ridiculous for me to even ask you to come and enter into my world. Jesus' very first words in his Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5, were, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here, the centurion is putting flesh on that pronouncement. Acknowledging his lower rank demonstrates his poverty of spirit. And this is to his credit, which is why Jesus will go on in the next section, in verse 11, to equate the likes of, Jesus, the, likes of the centurion with those who will be in the kingdom of heaven. The other week, I attended this year's Governor's Prayer Breakfast at the Crown Ballroom. And it's an annual event. It's been held since 1991. And uh, this year, over 1,200 people gathered at 7am on a Friday morning. And the governor of WA, Chris Dawson, he gave an address. And of particular note, he proclaimed to everyone present that his earthly boss is King Charles III. But over and above him, he has a heavenly boss, who is the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. How wonderful to have a governor who is willing to demonstrate his poverty of spirit, outwardly proclaiming his submission to Jesus and his dependence on Jesus for carrying out his role as the chief executive of our state. It's a wonderful thing. How does this all apply for us? It's good for us to remember that uh, whatever our role, we are poor in spirit and, and we need to uh, be, be like our governor, recognising that we have a boss in, in whatever jobs that we have. We have a boss, but ultimately, over and above that, we have the boss who is the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. We might be in one or more of the following categories we might be well respected. We might be highly regarded. We might be high up the corporate ladder, or at least we might be off the bottom rung. We might be capable of organising people, and that might include the people in our family. We might be possessing skills to which others aspire. Now, even if we were to possess all of these qualifications combined, we only belong in the kingdom of heaven if these things are accompanied by poverty of spirit. We need to recognise that we only have these things because the Lord has given them to us. Let us recognise that Jesus outranks us no matter what credentials we might have and we can truly be successful 
in our highly respected roles only if we do so in submission to Jesus. Now the centurion goes on in verse 8 to say, so have a look at verse 8, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. What's the centurion saying here? Well, he is confident in Jesus' ability to heal. It's not just hit and miss, but every time Jesus makes such a command, it will happen. He's aware that Jesus doesn't even need to make contact with the person to be healed. He can do it remotely. And then the centurion explains his basis for, the, for his confidence in Jesus. He, the centurion, is under the authority of the Roman emperor. He does whatever is in keeping with the will of the emperor. And he orders those under him to do likewise, and so the emperor's will is carried out. He recognises that Jesus is part of the same authority structure. Jesus is under the authority of heaven. He does the will of the Father. Illnesses and diseases are under Jesus' authority. And so when he orders them to go, they go, and the will of heaven is accomplished. Here is the remarkable thing which caused Jesus to marvel. The centurion evidently had, had some exposure to the ways of Judaism, but he wouldn't have been schooled in the law and the prophets in the same way that regular Jews were. And yet, he wasn't blinded by his own expectations arising from whatever he had read in the Jewish scriptures and whatever had been presented to him. He saw that God was active through Jesus in a way that no person in Israel had yet perceived. So to the extent that God had been revealed to him, the centurion took hold of every bit of, of God and trusted in him. I find it fascinating that Jesus was present and active at the beginning of creation, bringing about the whole creation process simply through the word, speaking it all from a void into existence. And here, he found a Gentile who recognised the creative power of Jesus to restore simply through the word, as it's written in verse 8. The centurion does indeed demonstrate faith which surpasses that of all Israel. So brothers and sisters, how is your faith? How is my faith? How is your level of trust in Jesus? Is it equal to that of the centurion? The centurion was discerning of what Jesus was able to do. Let's take on board all that God has shown of himself to us. Let's be hungry to digest God's revelation so that we can discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you need help to know where to start reading scripture in order to seek God, ask for help in this. The Bible, it's a big book. It can be daunting, and especially at first, but it's full of treasure from the Lord. So don't be overawed by it. Come and ask 
me or someone else here whom you trust. If you reflect on your walk with God, with the Lord, and you see that your trust has been half-baked, talk to the Lord repeatedly throughout each day, asking him to lead you in all that you do. And connect yourself to other believers to encourage you. And you might also find that you end up encouraging them. When we look to our own response to God, would he be marvelling at me? Would he be marvelling at you? Listen to what Kevin DeYoung at the Gospel Coalition says about the things that Jesus would be marvelling at today. I think when he sees people trusting in the midst of extreme suffering, he marvels. I think when he sees people from the roughest backgrounds come to him with broken-hearted humility, he marvels. When he sees you give up comfort and security for the sake of the kingdom, he marvels. So there we have the account in which we learn it was the centurion's faith that made Jesus marvel. It was the centurion's faith that made Jesus marvel. As we go on to the second section of this passage in verse 11 to 13, let me tell you about another story from Kath. When Kath was at university, she was called to the dean's office. She knew it was about a group assignment that she had done, and she knew that this assignment had been substandard because the other group members had not pulled their weight. She assumed she was to be reprimanded, that she was in some sort of trouble. However, when she entered the dean's office, the dean apologised to her, saying she should never have been put with such poor fellow students and that the group mark would be cancelled and Kath would be given 98% and the other two would fail. Now, I tell this story as an illustration of an expectation being overturned. And in this instance, the outcome ended up being much better than expected. So as we turn to verses 11 to 13, how does Jesus use the centurion's faith for teaching his own followers? Well, in these verses, he overturns the current expectations of the day. The Jews in Jesus' time had their minds set on the day that Israel would be a kingdom set free from the Roman Empire. They held on to the promise given to Abraham at the time that, Jesus, that uh, Israel was founded that they would be a great nation. But they weren't focusing on another promise given at the same time that they would be a blessing to the Gentiles whereby God would incorporate the Gentiles into his people. The kingdom of heaven... Jesus tells them in verse 11, is for many who will come from the east and west. And who are these people from the east and west? It's the Gentiles, people like this uh, centurion friend here. In the Old Testament prophet Malachi, he's speaking as the mouthpiece of the Lord. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In other words, from the east to the west, the Lord of hosts will be great among the Gentiles. So Jesus brings to the attention of his followers that Gentiles would be in the kingdom. So much so 
and have a look what's next in verse 11. They would recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The companions with whom Jews chose to recline at table was taken very seriously. For example, in chapter 9, just the next chapter, the Pharisees, the Jewish elite, rebuked Jesus sharply because Jesus reclined at table with Jews who were tax collectors and sinners. How much worse in their eyes to dine with non-Jews. And yet, here was Jesus describing how God would have Gentiles dine with the giants of their nation, the founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. What a despicable thought this was to the Jewish elite. Just as disturbing to the ears of the Jewish elite, in verse 12, Jesus overturns the matching expectation on the other side of the coin. There are some who expected to be in the kingdom on the basis of what they saw as their birthright. They might call themselves sons of the kingdom simply because they were born into Israel. But Jesus implies if they are devoid of faith, they will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thinking about that word darkness for a moment, I find it remarkable that in Genesis 1, prior to God speaking into creation to give it order and substance and life, there is darkness over the face of the deep. And here in Matthew 8, those who don't trust in the creative word that spoke into um, that speaks, are cast into the place with the same description, into the darkness. Those who don't align themselves with what God is doing in creation have chosen torment for themselves and find themselves expelled from the beautiful order and substance and life that God has created. Matthew mentions that Jesus talks about the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth in six different episodes throughout this gospel. It's a reality that he emphasises, so I thought I had better emphasise it as well. Now Matthew finishes this account by describing how the centurion, the one who was poor in spirit and abounding in faith, he had a taste of the kingdom of heaven in the here and now. In verse 13, the servant is healed at that very moment. So there we have the second section, the kingdom of faith. The kingdom of heaven is by faith, not by birthright. The kingdom of heaven is by faith, not by birthright. How do these verses apply to us? Well, you see, being a Jew does not guarantee being in the kingdom of heaven. And likewise, being in the church does not guarantee it either. You might have been in the church for many years. But if your motivation for being here hasn't been on the basis of a poverty of spirit and a trust in the living Lord Jesus who overcomes anything and everything that is lacking in our own spirit, then I invite you to acknowledge your poverty of spirit right now. Ask God for forgiveness and trust in Jesus to overcome and to be the master of your life. 
To do this is to become a new creation and you enter into the kingdom of heaven. Praise God. If this is you responding, as I've described, tell someone you trust to share your joy and to be there for you. Now lastly, the guarantee to be in the kingdom is not there for the unfaithful, but the converse is true. There is a guarantee for those having faith in Jesus. Be assured that if God has brought, brought you into covenant relationship with Jesus, such that you trust in him, he is faithful to keep you in his kingdom. If God has laid anything on your heart from this passage this morning, let's pray that the seeds sown may grow in you and may blossom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this man whose faith made our Lord Jesus marvel was not a disciple. He did no miracles. He planted no churches. He had no degree and no religious title. His spiritual resume was unimpressive. This man, with the greatest faith of all the people Jesus had met, was a centurion who simply knew who Jesus was, what he was able to do, and who humbly made a request to Jesus and trusted that he would receive what he needed. Lord, Help us to believe in Jesus with a similar conviction and intensity that the centurion did. Grant us the faith that makes Jesus marvel. With humility and boldness, we pray to you in Jesus' name. Amen.